Many times it's useful with financial planning to have a metaphor to apply to thinking through what you need to do with your life and how to approach it and how to approach each and every financial decision. Well, one apt metaphor for that is chess. And today, I've got Doug Goldstein, who is a co-author of the book Rich as a King, How the Wisdom of Chess Can Make You a Grandmaster of Investing. And we're going to talk about taking a conceptual planning approach to your financial plan. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I'm your host. Thank you so much for being with me today. I'm going to get a little bit nerdy on you and talk about chess. I hadn't really thought much about this as a metaphor before I spoke with Doug, but as you'll hear in a moment, during the course of the conversation, it really came out that, yes, this is absolutely a very useful way of approaching your own financial plan, and I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. There are a lot of different ways that we can approach financial planning, but one of the things that I see is many people approach it in a too straightforward of a way, rather than stink- thinking uh, stinking, <laughs> rather than thinking about things strategically. And so we're going to talk about strategy uh, in today's show. I think you're going to enjoy Doug. He's a financial advisor. He's an author. He's written many books. He uh, has a an international financial planning practice, which you'll hear about in today's show. And it actually factors into a little bit of our conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Before I play the interview for you, let's uh, take care of our sponsors real quick. So sponsor number one today is You Need a Budget. This is the official budgeting software of Radical Personal Finance. It is absolutely wonderful. Uh, from time to time, I think about building different financial tools for you, the listening audience, and as an additional way to create products and services uh, to make money for myself. And one of the tools that I do not plan to be building is a budgeting software. That's because You Need a Budget is fantastic, and I don't see any way for me or any reason for me to try to build something to compete with them. The best way to get exposure to You Need a Budget is first start with listening to the interview that I did with Jesse Meekham, the founder, and you'll hear my story with with You Need a Budget. That's episode number 246 of the show. So just look in your podcast player and go back a few episodes and listen to episode 246. Uh, Start with that and then just simply download the free download. uh, There's no charge to you to download it free for 30 days. You get the full functioning, full version of the program. You can find that link at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash YNAB. Incidentally, one of the questions that just came up in the Irregulars Facebook group, that's for patrons of the show who are at the $25 and a month and up level where I spend time in answering questions, and we have a really great community in a, in a private Facebook group. Uh, one of the questions that just came up a couple of weeks ago, or excuse me, a couple of days ago, was a discussion about what type of business budgeting software to use. And my recommendation to this listener who was looking for business budgeting, uh, business accounting software was actually simply to use YNAB. And you'll hear in the course of the interview with Jesse Meekham, that's what he uses for his business budget. And I've actually switched all of my business finances for Radical Personal Finance 
finance over to YNAB. Don't get confused. It's not a double-entry accounting system. It's not going to be something that your controller is going to use to run all of the accounts for your 500-person company. But for any small and medium-sized company, it uh, I think it'll do perfectly well. And it's much more intuitive than some of the normal ones like QuickBooks or, or some of the other uh, FreshBooks or some of the other uh, versions that are out there. Nothing wrong with those versions, but they're a little bit more complicated. And more importantly, YNAB allows the budgeting function, which is the forward-looking function. Other pieces of software are probably better at the tracking function, but from the perspective of forward-looking and planning, which is the essence of financial uh, planning and financial management, YNAB is really great. YNAB, again, stands for You Need a Budget. Find the download link for a free 30-day trial at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash YNAB. Second sponsor of the day is Paladin Registry. If you are looking for a financial advisor, there are many places you can go. Obviously, you're going to hear this episode with Doug Goldstein. He's a financial advisor, so uh, if his work and his service sounds good to you, good to you uh, you'll hear all of his information at the end of the show. But uh, Doug has a specific type of client base, and so he might be able to serve a few of you, but he's not going to serve all of you. So if you're looking for a financial advisor, and I think everybody needs a good financial advisor, uh, start your search at Paladin Registry. Paladin Registry is a registry service where they are vetted financial advisors, carefully chosen and carefully vetted. Best way to learn learn some details there is to listen to episode 248 of Radical Personal Finance. That is an over an hour interview with the founder of Paladin Registry, Jack Waymeyer. Go and listen to that episode and hear what the service is about. Uh, and then if you're ready, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash Paladin, P-A-L-A-D-I-N, Paladin, and you'll find the details there. Uh, you can put in your information there. You'll put in what will happen is it'll pull up a, a special page and please use that link so I get credit for the referral. That way I get a paycheck for sending you through that link. But you'll put in your name and your uh, your name, your email address, your phone number, and you'll put in the amount of assets that you have that you'd like to discuss. And then they will contact you with a uh, with some links to uh, and some contact information for some advisors. If they don't have an advisor in your area, they will tell you that. Uh, that's happened to one listener. Uh, if they do have advisors, they'll send you a number of advisors. You can talk with them on the phone. You can arrange to have an interview if you want. It uh, doesn't matter to me whether you go forward and use one of their services, but hopefully it'll be a good place to start for you to actually speak with them and and feel free to interview several. And by the way, continue to give me feedback on your experience as you start to work with their advisors. I, I value that feedback. So sponsorships out of the way. Let's get right to the content of today's interview. And here is the interview with Doug Goldstein. Senor Goldstein, welcome to Radical Personal Finance. Hey, Josh. Real, real great to be here. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I, I'm really concerned that we're going to lose everybody uh, right off the bat because as I introduce you here – not only are we going to talk about money and investing, which although my audience is pretty passionate about the subject, it's not generally a broad-based area of interest for across the population. But even worse, we're going to talk about chess. And when I was in chess club in high school, I didn't ever advertise that I was in chess club. I just went at 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning and played chess with some <laughs> friends. But it's not something that I wore as a badge of honor in high school. So, well, not uh, to worry. I will tell you, first of all, uh, I've prepared a number of jokes for this. Uh, so people hang in, they'll get laughing. And secondly, it turns out that the world of chess has a lot more intrigue 
than you'd imagine. And we don't have to talk about how to play chess, but it's much more interesting to talk about who's playing chess. Well, it seems like it's one of those very small niches. I, I mean, do you have any guess as to how many people actually play chess or, or percentage of the people that know how to play it even? A billion people. Are you I think serious? It's huge. I'm not kidding. In fact, that's one of the uh, the main reasons why uh, why we, we got into this topic. I, I, I wrote this book just to give a little background yeah, with go. a woman who was a world chess champion. Her name is Susan Polgar. Uh, currently the world chess champion is a, uh, a young man named Magnus Carlsen, but before him was a, uh, an Indian fellow who had been, he had defended his title for years and years as the number one player. And as we both know, there's a, a lot of people in India and he's a, a national hero. Anand is a, is a, is a national hero and lots of people play. Just like in the 1970s when Bobby Fischer became big in America, now, he was quite a controversial guy, but, after him, the whole world of chess changed from being, you know, uh, $1 games to million-dollar matches. So why in the United States does it seem to have, I guess, is it just high school where it has the stigma? I, it's been a long time since I've been in high school. But <laughs> Thankfully, one of the great right? <laughs> <laughs> And it is true. I guess I didn't talk it up much. But we're seeing more and more. There's these huge programs called Chess in the Schools. That brings it into elementary schools. And it, there are many, many studies have shown that kids who play chess do significantly better in all walks of life. And chess in the school is specifically designed to bring chess programs to low-income areas where kids are at, at huge risk to become you know, not successful in any of a number of ways. And this absolutely turns their life around. Awesome. So you've written a book called Rich is the King, How the Wisdom of Chess Can Make You a Grandmaster of Investing. And that's going to be our primary topic of conversation. But I'd love for you to give a little bit of your personal and professional bio so that the listeners can understand where you're coming from and what kind of, what kind of background you're sharing from. Okay, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it very short, which, Josh, I think I can say you and I have a, a lot in common. <laughs> <We both. laughs> Uh, worked in the financial planning world. I think I did a little longer. I started a little over 20 years ago. And I was actually, when I began working on Wall Street, I was partners with my mother, who was a vice president uh, at a big brokerage firm. So we worked together with all of our clients. And on the retail we, side or on the uh, On the retail side. Okay, so I've individual just, customers. Yeah, yeah. Normal, normal folks, mm-hmm. everyday folks. Cool. And uh, in fact, one of the things that, uh, that, that I think I really learned from my mother was before she had been in the business, she had been a teacher. And so when she and I would sit down and do client meetings, most of what we did was just to educate people about what their choices were and what the risks are. Because, And even to this day, I tell people all the time, I'm simply not a prophet. I, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I consider my job is to explain the risks to you in a language which you can understand. And then you have to make the decision. At the end of the day, you've got to pull the trigger. So you started working on the retail side and then you spent your entire career with the same firm or, or you transitioned to a different business model at some point? So after a little while, and by the way, I should mention one more thing because it doesn't just come from my mother. My mother's mother, my grandmother, was one of the first women to be licensed as a stockbroker in America. How cool is that? Yeah, way cool. So she was, uh, she had already retired by the time I got into the business, but she was one of my favorite clients, always calling in to get stock books <laughs> in the days before the internet when you actually had to call your broker to get a stock book. Yeah, so then uh, I worked there for a few years, and then I decided, my wife and I actually decided to move to Israel. And so I began a, a real specialty, which was working with people who live outside the United States who want to invest in the United States. So I did exactly the same thing that any 
CFP would do or any investment advisor would do. I just had this special, uh, I guess, sort of uh, niche in the market, which was dealing mostly with expatriates, people who retire outside the U.S., mm-hmm. or non-U.S. people who want to have who want to invest in stocks, bonds, and mutual funds like you know regular Americans do. You've just opened up probably a very long path of conversation, <laughs> but let's stay focused uh, on the book topic first, and then maybe we can swing around to that at the end. Cause I know that's a, a huge area of interest uh, for many people trying to figure out. And I have a lot of international listeners who say, well, my local market is, uh, is inefficient. My local market is uh, manipulated more than the U S market. So how can I uh, access the U S markets as an expatriate? So uh, how did the, Top, but I have a lot to say on that. Okay, so, good. So yeah, let's, let's wait on that, though, and let's profile your book. Uh, how did you decide to write a book? Are you still actively practicing with planning, and you did, or did you close your practice and decided to build a book on it? Yeah, so this was actually my fourth book. This is uh, the, this one. Um, in the past, I've written more specific books. I've written books uh, specifically for the expatriate market that were a little more focused on um, – investing in the U.S. from outside the U.S. And I wrote a book on retirement, uh, sort of self-retirement planning, which is just a series of very short essays that, uh, in fact, maybe a little later I'll tell people if they want to get a free copy of that book, we can talk about how to do that. But uh, this book came up because two of my kids were chess champions in Israel. And uh, so, of course, when, when you're a proud father and your kids are chess champions, you get them a chess coach. So we hired a, a guy, uh, Russian, Seems obvious to me he'd be Russian, <laughs> and his name, of course, was Boris. Of course, and uh, it turned out that he was uh, one of the. When he was in Russia, he had been a trainer of s- some of the top names in the in the world of chess, and uh, so he was my kid's coach. And I used to sit in on the coaching sessions. And one of the things that financial people do, but also chess people do, is they look back at the things they've done recently and do a post mortem to see what mistakes did I made, what did I do right or wrong. And when Boris and I were doing a postmortem on a game that I had played, he said to me, right, we were examining one of the moves. He said, Doug, your, your bishop is over here. It's a badly placed piece. Why didn't you move it? So I said, oh, Boris, because I was busy with something else that turn. And then the next turn we examined, he said, Doug, your bishop's still there in a bad place. Why didn't you move it? I said, well, I wanted to castle this turn. And every time he'd ask me why I didn't move my bad piece, I always had some excuse. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the questions he were asking, what he was asking me were exactly the same questions that I ask clients when they have a bad investment. I'll say, you know, why do you have, you know, all your money in this one stock? And they mm-hmm. go, well, you know, I think it's going to do really well or, you know, I'm too busy to think about it. They always have an excuse. And, I, and then I started writing down all the, the little bits of wisdom that Boris said about our chess games. And every single one of them had a, a really direct parallel to investing. And that's kind of what got this whole idea started, uh, I guess, about six or seven years ago. Definitely seems like a great, uh, I don't know what the right term is, analogy or lens metaphor. through which to look. Metaphor. Uh, nice. Just lens, a, nice. <laughs> a great way to look at the world of investing and to com- compare it. Uh, I flipped through your book and browsed it. I haven't read it in detail yet. So, uh, I'm not able to specifically comment on each and every individual point that you made. But in looking at it from the lens of just thinking about, okay, looking at finances strategically, there do seem to be a lot of great parallels between chess because what will make a great – and feel free, my chess knowledge is limited. So if I say anything that's wrong, please correct me. But what seems to me to make a great 
chess champion is the ability to see down multiple paths and think through long-term options without necessarily taking them, number one. Number two, the ability to think many moves ahead so that you know here's what the strategy is, so I'm orienting my pieces towards this overall strategy. And then also just simply being able to, I guess, take your time and, and build towards a plan. And when you start to put those things into the world of finance, amateur financial people just simply kind of take the next move. And it seems like the poorer somebody is, if you look, you often find a parallel in their thinking. They're just doing the next thing that feels good. They're not looking farther down the road. They're not t- thinking with a long time perspective. But the richer someone is, the more strategic they are. And a grand champion is probably much more likely to build an elaborate plan set things up, focusing on the trap at the end of 10 moves down the road versus, oh, let's go ahead and make this move because it's simple. And so you could take that metaphor, analogy, lens, whatever, and you can certainly see just all of the parallels between them. Yeah. First of all, thank you. You've now covered about a third of the book pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, everyone else should should still read it. But the... uh, to get the other two thirds, one of the things that, that you said was was real interesting. When I let me give you a little, I told about myself. But I, I want to tell you about uh, Susan Polgar, who I wrote mm-hmm. the book with. She's just her story is, is unbelievable. And then I'll tell you, I asked her one of the questions you just raised. So Susan was born in in communist Hungary, and and she, which you know, for those of us who grew up in America, it's very hard to understand what it means to grow up in a co- in a communist country where there is a certain path that you have to follow. It's not like, you know, I don't know, when I was in school, I don't know how it was for you. You know, I studied whatever I want. I had all these different clubs. I could go and come and go whenever I pleased. We traveled. We, you know, I competed on sports teams. It wasn't like that at all. So the problem was that Susan's father was this kind of radical psychologist psychiatrist in or psychologist in Hungary and he had this idea that genius could be learned it wasn't genetic and he was way ahead of his time because i don't know if you follow this today but people often talk about like the 10,000 hour rule and mm-hmm. they, they try to prove and i think it's pretty reasonable that you don't it, it's not genetics right it's not that you have to be born a genius but if you know how to work hard and work effectively then you can become a genius Anyway, so her father wanted to prove this with his own children, and he wanted to homeschool them. So I, I needed to give you the background because, you know, these days, lots of people homeschool, and it's normal. But in, in a communist country, when you sell, tell the government, you know, I'm not going to send my daughter to your schools because I don't believe in what you're doing. I, you know, I have a whole different outlook on the world, and I'm going to teach my kids, you know, my way. So, you know, he had a huge amount of chutzpah to say this to the government, but he didn't back down. And ultimately, he, he and his wife, they homeschooled their three daughters, all of whom became fantastic chess players, top in the world, and all against... This was a time when the communist government just didn't want them to succeed, and in fact had other people they wanted to succeed and wouldn't let them leave the country to compete and put a lot of restrictions on them. But Susan and her family were incredibly determined and ultimately became world champions. That's so. That's that's. Uh, it's just awesome because it was probably illegal at the time uh, to homeschool. I mean, especially one of the major methods of societal indoctrination for under the communist system was the schooling system, and sure. that was one of the primary tools of the state to establish uh, to establish a homogenous society that could be easily governed. Uh, of course, it's very different in the United States, but we'll move on from that. Uh, <laughs> did. So- 
So did, did have you noticed in her story that her skills with chess, did those translate to other aspects of her life? Yeah, in fact, in, this, in, the, in writing the book, we, a lot of the book is really just her stories and how she went from one challenge to the other. So it's not all about chess. In other words, we have chess diagrams, but you don't have to know a thing about chess to enjoy the book if you just like the stories of someone really and against all odds uh, success story. Uh, you know, I just want to touch on something before I forget, which was why I wanted to tell you this story in many moves ahead, and it sort of applies to what you're saying, which is so I asked Susan when we first got started, when you play a game of chess, how many moves ahead do you think? And I was sort of assuming that she would say, oh, you know, Doug, you and I sit down, I've already planned ahead 20 moves, you know, I know exactly what's going to happen. But she said, you know, I look at the board and then you know, maybe one, you know, two, right? That was it. I said, well, don't you have a plan? She said, looking moves ahead is different from a plan. And that led into a whole discussion of the difference between strategy, which, was, which is a big picture view of what you're doing, and tactics, which are the individual moves you make. And uh, I don't know if you can see where this is going, but I'll just sort of cut to the punchline, which is it's the same with financial planning. I, uh, financial planning is the big picture view of where you're trying to move your pieces. What are your ultimate goals? But you have no idea in doing a plan how, what you're going to trade every day for the next 50 years until you retire, that's something that literally could be a day-to-day decision or depending how you set it up, you know, a short-term decision. And it's all part of the, of the overall success of a world champion chess player and a super successful investor. It is a beautiful way to look at the world of investing because in chess, you certainly, your objective is very clear. Your objective is checkmate. And so looking at the strategy and the tactics and thinking about the moves, you know where you're trying to get to, but there are probably an infinite number of moves. I'm sure there's a mathematical calculation that could be applied to the exact number of potential moves, but there's a huge number of potential moves that can get you there. And sometimes you can get there very quickly and sometimes it's going to take time. One of the thoughts that I liked in the in the book and that I like about chess is the idea of different pieces having very different functions. And this is one of the things that makes chess so interesting is that you can't discount the value of any of your pieces. A queen might be much more versatile than a pawn, but the pawn is incredibly valuable and can be employed in the right way and in the right moment to be extremely an extremely useful tool. You can create a checkmate scenario with a pawn and a knight. You don't have to always use the queen. But yet there are some moves that are going to move more quickly. And when I look at financial planning, my big beef with financial (laughs) planners uh, specifically who are in the industry and also the financial planning media is that people don't seem to recognize the fact that there are many moves that can get you to the same place. And there are many types of plans that can get you to the same place. My issue with our industry, the financial advice industry, is we basically boil everything down to mutual funds and a little bit of insurance policies as protection. But when you actually look at the wealthy, you find out that old mutual funds didn't really play such a role unless they were the ones who were building the company selling mutual funds. So (laughs) the way I look at it and think about it is not that mutual funds are not useful – but they're just simply a very straightforward, basic approach. They're your pawns. They're your your straightforward moves. But if you look at the way that the wealthy actually develop and build uh, their their wealth, usually it's going to come with effectively deploying a knight. 
It's going to come with the business opportunity that they saw to take a queen right across the board. But even in thinking in terms of defensive strategies, if you consider a chessboard, you can't effectively employ your queen on the other side of the board unless she's been protected. So, <laughs> I mean, we're, I, don't know, I don't want to beat the analogy too far, but it definitely is a beautiful metaphor through which to think and apply it to financial planning. Because what I see in the financial advice industry is that there are millions of ways to achieve a goal. And it starts with get clear on the way and then look at the state of the board. And if you look at the state of the board and let's say you have an opening, an opening sequence, you can't all of a sudden your, – your first move can't be to move your queen out across the board. You've got to develop your pieces in the initial stages of a chess game. And so we should be taking into account stages, where people are at in their finance. Um, <laughs> I'm going to shut up because you're the one who wrote the book on no, it. And here I, I am taking your metaphor to the extreme. <laughs> what say yeah, you? No, I, I think one of the things you're raising, which is real important, is that there are different pieces on the board. And you know, I'll give you a story. It's actually one of the stories that uh, that we told in, in the book. So, heck, and, and another piece of uh, another piece of information from the book. When I had um, when I had spoken to Susan about this concept of pieces working together, she said that is that is one of the most important skills you have to have in developing yourself as a as a tactician and knowing how to move. And all amateur players. Right at the beginning of the game, they bring out their queen. They move it around until you know they hope they're going to confront the opponent, the opponent's king, and then win. Right. And that you know that never happens on a high level. And because they're not letting their pieces work together, and when she and I were discussing this, I remembered a story that I had a very very wealthy family come in once, and they wanted me to take over managing some of the money. And I was looking at the way it was set up, and I said, you know, I, I think I need to speak to the um, tax attorney who set up this program. And they said, no, they did, these were not like, they were wealthy, but not the most sophisticated people. And they said, no, no, you know, what's the issue? I said, I'm not sure we should be transferring this account the way you want to do it. And so they said, well, we'll check with him and let you know. So I said, okay, I'm holding the paper. And this, by the way, for me was a huge account. It wasn't a small amount of money, and I was obviously happy to, to work with them. So I said, okay, you check and let me know. And a little while later, we spoke again, and I said, uh, they said, okay, we're ready to transfer. I said, did you check with your accountant? With the tax lawyer, and they said, uh, uh, no, but it's going to be okay. I said, no, no, you have to check with your tax lawyer. If you'd like, I'd be happy to talk to him. They said, no, no, you don't have to. Anyway, so at the end of the day, I finally really pushed the issue because I was not comfortable with their transferring the money the way they wanted to. And it turned out that their, their tax lawyer said, oh, no, you can't do it that way because that would mess up all we have like multi-generational estate planning that we've done. And it's a good thing that Doug spotted this before he moved the money and that he insisted you talk to me because otherwise you would have suffered a huge, huge tax loss. And I think this goes back you know, exactly what you're saying, Josh, which is that if your pieces aren't working together in order to get to a specific destination, you could make a really good move like transferring your money to Doug to manage, but it could end up being a disaster because it ruins a whole plan. Right. So that, that's why I, I, that was one of the, the good lessons I think that people drew from, uh, from the chessboard. Why don't people think more strategically about their finances? Well, I'll tell you what happens when you think strategically. My daughter, I, <laughs> it's sort of funny because I know uh, Dave Ramsey's daughter has gotten into the financial planning world too, but my daughter also. Uh, my daughter's uh, quite an entrepreneur. She, uh, she's a, an online language teacher, but she's really more of a businesswoman. And she gave a talk recently to a bunch of uh, uh, teens and young 20-year-old 20, 20 women about financial planning. 
And she gave them a few important points. She said, don't use credit cards. She said, keep track of your expenses. And she said, understand the difference between wants and needs. You know, she gave a whole speech about it and examples and stories. And she said her talk, and normally she's a very well-liked speaker. She said her talk was not accepted at all well. And people argued with her and they complained. And she said their biggest complaint was simply that people didn't want to, they, they, they didn't want to do it because they said, it's not fun. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to live that life. Right? I don't want to have to think about money. I just want to have a lot of money. So we can talk about big, you know, macro cultural issues of how people just want to get things for no work. But that's, that's, that's a topic for a different day. Right. It, it's definitely something that plagues our society. I don't know what percentage of the society plays chess. I mean, my audience and my culture is primarily U.S. American. I got to imagine it's not as high a percentage as perhaps in some other places. And it is reflected in the way that we approach our, our lives. And I love just the idea of developing different plans and different moves as the metaphor for financial planning, knowing where you want to go and then thinking what's the most strategic way. One thing about chess, and I'd love for you to comment on this, there are opportunities that emerge through the course of a game. You can't predict at the moment where those opportunities are, but if you have a well-developed board and you've got flexibility in your pieces, then when you see an opportunity, you can strike. I see the same thing with finance. There are opportunities that come along in life, whether it's the opportunity to buy out a competitor. I had a, a client of mine who was in a, uh, a business that uh, was in 2008. He was in a business here in Florida that was heavily impacted by the uh, – it was a hurricane protection business. It was heavily impacted by uh, the, uh, the downturn in the economy. And he had a pretty decent, very nice business before the downturn. But then during the downturn, all of a sudden, all of his competitors started to really suffer because people stopped buying. There was In Florida, where I live, there was a major frenzy with purchasing hurricane protection systems after the hurricane season of 2005, where uh, we had four hurricanes that hit the state in one year. And so everybody was very attuned to the idea of buying protection for their house, buying shutters, buying things like that. Well, after 2005, we haven't had another real major storm hit the state in the last 10 years. So the influence that people's desire to uh, people's desire to go ahead and buy uh, went down. And also with the economic downturn in 2007, 2008, the excess money that people would have usually put into uh, things like that evaporated, especially as they stopped having so much equity in their house. So it was kind of a perfect storm of downsides for his business. But because he was well-prepared and well-balanced, he was able to start buying out his competitors. And so he, his competitors, little by little, they had been pushing things to the extreme, and they were really living at the limit of their finances. So then they weren't prepared for the downturn. They had to start laying people off. Well, he was able to come in. He was able to buy up their stock, buy up their businesses, buy up their customer lists at pennies on the dollar. And his empire went from a local empire to a statewide, in many ways, empire where he was now the big dog in the state. But the only reason he was able to do it was because he was personally in a good position 
with plenty of cash reserves, plenty of business. He had built his business to the point where it was running itself so that he could afford to expand, where he wasn't just going to be piling more work on himself. And the move came along and he took it, and he's in a much better situation today because of it. When I compare that to to, to I mean, when I compare that situation, to me, that's the benefit of a well-developed chessboard. A, 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 an excellent chess player can't predict when the opportunity is going to come along, but they know I'm developing my chessboard. I'm building some depth. I'm trying to develop some pieces, build a little room on the board, but I'm trying to be well-developed so that when the move opens, I can take it. Who could have predicted that <laughs> there would be four hurricanes in 2005? Everyone would want to buy hurricane stuff. Everybody expands. Then all of a sudden, the money evaporates in 2007, 2008. The equity evaporates. The market falls, and there's no more hurricanes. Who could have predicted that? You can't. But you can be well developed, so when that door opens, you can take it and expand an empire. Yeah, I think that's very true. I think what you the, the story you're you're telling actually reminds me of one of the themes that uh, that came up when I asked Susan the question. In 2005, she broke the Guinness Book of World Records playing the most number of simultaneous chess games. She played, played something like 400 people wow. at the same time. It took. Uh, it was done in a big mall in Florida. And they had these 400 people lined up and tables all around. I think she walked because she goes from table to table to table, making a move, making a move. It, I think it took 19 hours and it was all together. She walked uh, 10 miles uh, going all around and around for all that time, which uh, she had to switch into sneakers instead of high heels, which is how she <laughs> nor- normally plays a simultaneous. It's very impressive. If you've never seen a chess grandmaster play multiple people at once, it's really something. But to do 400 people at once, it's just, uh, you know, w- was unheard of. And so I asked her, I, I asked her, Susan, how do you do that? In other words, how could you manage to, um, to play so many games at once? What did you do? And so she said, she said, the, the first thing I did every time I looked at a, uh, a board is I would look for the risk. In other words, the number one thing I had to ask myself is, is my king at risk? Or my pe- is there a specific risk that I have to deal with? And the second thing I would do is what you're saying now, which is I would look for an opportunity. She said, is there like a free piece? You know, did the opponent open something up and I can just grab it? After I looked for the risk, after I looked for the opportunity, then I invested. And it has to be in that order. And by the way, the, the, uh, the, uh, the letters that each of these words start with is risk, opportunity, invest, ROI. And so we've, we've coined this phrase because a lot of people think that ROI return, refers to return on investment. And our paradigm talks about risk, opportunity, invest. And it, it turns out, I believe, this applies to everything you do. And most people don't do it. The way most people invest is they look for the opportunity. And unfortunately, that could mean they open a newspaper and they read an ad for a mutual fund that says, we made 20% last year, you know, and they go, oh, great. And they throw their money at it. Instead, people, most people are, you know, have risk in their portfolio today, whether it's, it's a, a poorly managed portfolio, whether they've got a lot of credit card debt in terms of their own life, whether they're underwater with their hat, whatever it is, they've got some risk that they should be dealing with first. That's the R. Then they should look for the opportunities. Is there, you know, am I sitting with $100,000 in the money market doing nothing? You know, what can I do to improve that situation? After they've done those two, that's the time to begin to build up a slow but steady approach, which, which will make you win eventually. But you have to go in the ROI order, risk, opportunity, invest. 
one thing I like about it, her story, where you talk about taking some easy pieces in chess, you may not be able to see the grand strategy at the beginning. In my mind, at least, in my experience, my life, it's been that way. I've had a general idea of what I've been working for, but I couldn't see the strategy. I couldn't exactly know where it is. And in chess, you know, okay, I'm heading for checkmate. That's the goal. But I can't see the killer move. I can't see the perfect opportunity. But I can go ahead and take some pieces along the way. And I love that risk opportunity invest because it lays out a good way to build these things together. Let's say that you're coaching. How old, how old are your kids now? I've got a 21, 19, 18, and 15. Perfect. So you're coaching your 18 or your 19-year-old. Well, there are some standard kind of peacetaking things that an 18 or 19 year old can do. They can work on developing their education. They can work on making sure that they're saving some money. They can just knock down some risks. And these are like taking pieces. Now, who knows if they're going to build the next app that's going to go viral and you know be the next Angry Birds developer, or who knows <laughs> if they're going to become a local real estate developer. We don't, you don't know. But you don't have to sit around. You just start taking pieces, keeping your eye on the grand vision figuring out where are the opportunities. And then when you see the opportunity, there may be that point in time where you see the, you see the kill shot on the other side of the board and then you, you move in and, and go for it. But you still need to be taking pieces and moving forward while you're, while you're doing it. Yeah, I think as you're doing that, one of, one of the – this is difficult. You know, you'd asked before, why don't people think strategically? And I think that one of the main reasons is because is they have a bad view on money. You know, most people are bean counters. Eh, I got another dollar. Now I'm a dollar richer. And therefore, everything they're doing seems so focused on growing the amount of money that, of course, they'll take on a lot more risk in many, many cases than they should. And frankly, I just don't think it's a healthy way to look at things. One of the things that I talk to my kids about and I talk to my clients about, I write about a lot, is the importance of giving charity as the number one thing that you do, which is um, we, we, we encourage people to give 20% of what they earn to charity. Now, this is a lot, right? The average American, I think, gives something like 1% to 2%. But there are plenty of people who give 20%. And, the, the, and by the way, the, you know, some of the richest people that I work with, they're absolutely at this level and, you know, or more. And they always tell me, they say, you know, when things go bad, I just give more charity because that's the only thing I really have. My, my stocks can go down in value. My business can go bust. But if I've given the money, that's, that's an asset that I've, you know, I have done this charitable work. And one of the things I noticed about these people, you know, people who are particularly charitable, is that they have a healthy attitude towards money, and that allows them to be more strategic. They're not constantly petrified about losing another dollar, and that allows them to be intelligent investors, nor are they greedy, which makes them uh, take a, do investments that are too risky. So I think a, a takeaway, and I, I leave this for everyone, is try being a 20% donor. And I know a lot of people are like, holy cow, I'm never going to have enough money. And by the way, that's on top of being a 20% saver for your retirement. They say, how am I going to live? How am I going to possibly manage? And my answer to that is I've never, ever once spoken to someone who was a, a big uh, charity person. And I'm in a lucky position. I've met a lot of them. Uh, never has anyone said to me, gee, Doug, I'm kind of you know, dry. I'm a, I'm a little bit broke. And I only wish I hadn't given so much charity last year. I've never heard those words. And I think this is a great way to really build up emotionally how you see money and strategically how you'll be able to manage it. That advice is counterintuitive to (laughs) 
much yeah. of uh, of the way that we approach finance. Why do you Give think that's try. the case? What, like, do you, do you have any insight under why? Uh, listen, I, the, the theory. This goes with the theory that you should only buy investments that you know are the lowest fee investments. So this is very intuitive. It's a, in fact, it's true, right? Every dollar you pay to an investment, and we've all done these calculations that you know, the dollar you paid in investing, if that you kept that and it compounded over fifty years, you know, you'd be super rich. So I agree with that. Obviously, it's true. Whatever you don't have, um, you don't have. However, what that neglects to to take into account is if you don't pay anything to manage the money, either you're going to get crummy investments or you're not going to get any advice or any help. You've got to find the balance between pay, either managing everything on your own and hoping that you're really good at it, and if you're not, then you probably shouldn't manage it on your own, or paying someone to do the work. So I don't think these are, there's, there's no across-the-board axiom that you can say that never pay more for something because you have to make sure you're getting a value for it. So I believe that the value you get from giving charity, actually giving away the money to some good cause, apart from like all the karma or religious benefits you get, which we can talk about later also. We have lots to talk about later. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, it's what's going to really, it's going to change the way you, um, you view money. And the worst case scenario is you helped someone else. It's an interesting question. I, I'm not quite satisfied with your answer. Um. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. Well, it's, it, I'm just thinking it through with you because it's, a, it's advice that I've often heard, and there would be different perspectives. So, for example, uh, uh, different religions will have different teachings on the subject. I have a friend of mine who's a Jewish rabbi, and, and we talk a lot about that um, from the Jewish perspective, and he, he talks it through with me. I'm a Christian, so I come at it from the Christian perspective. Um, there are I've read secular books from people who don't acknowledge any sort of uh, religion or, or, or uh, deity influence, and they talk about the concept of giving. And in my mind, it, it starts to change. There are a couple of aspects. I guess the two that come out to me, uh, and I wasn't necessarily finding fault with you. I'm just, it's, it's something I think we need to explore more, but I'm teaching, you know, I want to teach my children the same thing to give. And I see two major impacts of it. Number one, it changes your oper- it, it changes my focus from a self-centered accumulation focus of money to a broader uh, to a broader focus. It's just life is just more fun when you can uh, when you can give money away. And it I've experienced at least it changes a little bit of my perspective to see what's available. I hate it almost gets into the world of metaphysics which is there's so much bad advice in the financial space on this but when you're not focused on every last dollar this is my very last dollar this is my very last penny you start to see opportunities and when i look around and see the opportunities that exist in the world i very much think i guess I'm going to sound like a, a, a new age guru here. You just think from the perspective of abundance. Like you see the opportunities and you see the options that are there. And you see that the pie is not limited in size. The pie has an infinite ability to expand. And so giving money away I think starts to just – it changes me. That's one reason. I think it does. Uh, Don't you want to have the kind of kids who give away money? In other words, if you could – you're hanging out with your friends at the pool and – you say, yeah, my son's you know mowing lawns this year, and you know he made a thousand dollars. He gave two hundred dollars to uh, to a soup kitchen. Right. You know, you have that conversation. You're all people heads are going to turn. Wow, really? 
Really? So, you know, that's amazing. What a good kid. So if you would say that, or if your friend says, yeah, my kid, you know, he, you know he, not that he volunteered so he could put it on his resume to get into a better college, right? That's just cynical. Mm-hmm. Talking about people who are fundamentally good people who want to help the world. And I don't care which charity you give to, right? Whether you give it with your name or without your name. I spoke to a guy who's a billionaire and a huge, huge donor. And I asked him this question. I said, is it better to give anonymously uh, or, you know, have a plaque with your name on it? He said, Doug, I don't care. Just people should give. And if that's your goal, and really the challenge, and Josh, I'm going to put the challenge on you. Try it. You know, this thing I can, we can talk all day about it and be intellectual. Next, for the next 12 months, first, you know, every dollar you get in, 20 cents net, by the way, after tax, 20 cents goes to, uh, you know, to the charity of your choice. And I'll tell you one other amazing thing is, you know, people earn money, right? If you earn, whether you're earning 20000 or $200,000 a year, 20% of that amount of money is a lot of money. If you give $4,000 to a local charity, you are moving the needle. You know, you're really going to make a fundamental difference in whatever charity you choose to give to. I think how you're going to feel. You know, it's not like you just put a, a dollar in the cup that someone passed around. I also like how uh, I think with giving, you got, if, if you can't give a dollar out of 10, you're not going to give 100,000 out of a million. If you can't give $2 out of 10, you're not going to give 200,000 out of a million. Right. People think they will. But I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> I'm scared of having a million dollar payday because that means I got to write a check for two hundred thousand dollars. And if I haven't built the, the the habit along the way of giving two dollars out of ten, then I'm not gonna. There's not a chance I'm going to write the check when it's two hundred thousand out of a million. It's awesome to do it, and also after you do this for a while, it doesn't feel like that. In other words. My wife and I do this. We sit down usually once a quarter to review our our charity, and I have good pay days, you know, good and bad days, and uh, it, it doesn't even feel like oh, this is our money anymore. In other words, wouldn't it be great if Warren Buffett called you up and said, hey, "Josh, I've been listening to your show. I love it. You're like the you're a great. I'm going to give you a billion dollars that I want you to give out." Wouldn't that be like the most awesome job in the world? It would you know, be I would the love most to do overwhelming job in the world. <laughs> be, I, I just think it would be so cool, right? Wow, I can just sit here and I can give it out. And I, that's how I see the money, in other words. I see it from, frankly, I do see it from a religious standpoint. I say, listen, you know, God gave me $100. And mm-hmm. he says, Doug, good, look, I'm giving you $20 of mine. You just give it out to whoever you want. I think that's awesome. And thank God it's more than $100. And so, you know, we're really able to make an impact on a number of places. And it's very exciting to be part of, of you know, helping. And, and I don't know, we can move on. I don't want to you know, delve into this too long. But it's so much better to be the guy who gets to give the money than to be the guy who needs to get it. And I am grateful for that every day. Are you a Jew? I am. So in... So I'm going to ask you a question. I've wanted to ask this. Uh, <laughs> I've wanted to find somebody and bring on uh, and ask about this question because Jews have a reputation around the world of being able to accumulate money. Uh, that seems to be – now, there are various sides to that. People sometimes will make it a critical uh, a critical joke about uh, – the parsimonious nature of some Jewish people. But it seems like if you look at society, I haven't seen statistics on this, but Jews seem to control a massive amount of wealth on a global scale. Do you have any insight as to why that might be the case? Or is it the case? And do you have any insight onto why that might be the case? Um, I don't actually think that's true. I okay. think it's a perception. Um, but I do think that uh, the, the concept of charity 
I mean, it comes from the Bible, right? This is not, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, there's a passage in the Bible where God says, uh, you should give away charity, you should give charity. And he says, that this is the only place in the Bible where God says, if you give away charity, I'm going to, I'm going to, it's going to come back to you, you mm-hmm. know, come back to you for the good. And he says, you can test me on this. You can't go to God and say, listen, I, you know, I believe in you, I'm going to jump in front of a train and you, you save me, right? He's not saving you. Don't, don't count on that. But it's, in fact, it's, it's, it's not allowed, according to, to, to the Bible, to challenge God in that way, except on this one point. And I think, and I really do believe what I was saying before, which is that people who have a healthy sense of dealing with money, which I think comes from being charitable, will, uh, will accumulate more wealth. And so if you want to know why you know, your Jewish friends might be doing a little bit better, uh, maybe that's it. Well, that so the the scripture passage you're referring to comes from the book of Malachi, and it's actually one of the most difficult uh, scriptures that I personally deal with because it's been, in my opinion, so abused by religious people who their interpretation of of that, especially the worst, are Christians, um, and their interpretation of of the verses. God says, "Test me in this." So, therefore, your way to test God in this is to you know pour out your pour out your money and uh, and give it here to my religious institution, and let's go ahead and build a beautiful, large religious institution. And now you have a rich preacher and a rich bill. You know, he's he's living the high life while the people are suffering, and I despise that uh, approach to it. But yet, I can't argue with the fact that it sits there in, and it sits there in, in, in the scripture. And, you know, I don't know if the, I don't know if the, um, the thoughts about how much money or wealth, uh, Jewish people control or not. It could be just a, an aspect of anti-Semitism of, of, of racist, uh, you know, the Jews have been accused of all kinds of horrible things over the centuries as a way of, uh, as a part of anti-Semitism. Or is it actually true? Is it God actually demonstrating uh, a truth? And when you have people who live according to his precepts, and I believe that when you live according to the law of God, regardless of whether you believe it or not, you're going to get better results. Uh, it's just a question I've puzzled over, and I've never been <laughs> able to—I've never been able to solve it. And uh, right, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do a study in my client base, but mostly they're <laughs> Jewish because mostly they live in Israel. Right, so. right. Uh, yeah. But the—I uh, I just I want to one thing that it is true, and there are always going to be examples of some church that you know the guy was uh, buying a jet plane for himself and tried to get people to give money for right, it. Right, right. But uh, the. the my Christian friends and some of them also who are huge donors, you know, who they tithe or more, there's it, it it nothing like that. These are people who are literally, you know, get in their hands dirty to help the, to help the poor, to feed the hungry. And, uh, and you know, it's so inspiring. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to take this from a religious, you know, position. I, plenty of people are religious and, they're, and they, they know that they should be doing this. But I, I wouldn't look, you know, I'd be very uh, careful about you know, name calling or, or assuming some sort of prejudice and just encourage people, you know, each person is going to give for his own reason. But I just, I, I just have to tell you that the, my Christian friends are, are fantastic at giving. And by the way, a lot of people also hold that this concept of giving is not just money, but it's also of your time. So, you know, there are a lot of people, they, they go down to South America and volunteer, whether you call it a mission and you think, well, they're missionizing. They're not. They're like building houses and cleaning out swamps. More people need to dedicate more of their time for this. In Israel, you know, all the kids when they graduate high school, it's not this huge race to see who can get to the, 
the fanciest college with the greatest name. These kids are going into the army or into national service, and three of my kids already are you know into that. My two girls both volunteered for two years. They volunteered for two years to give to the country. My oldest daughter helped in uh, in a kindergarten for autistic kids. My second daughter does research for the government. My son is just starting in a uh, in a yeshiva, which is like a seminary that also has uh, military training. They are that the society is is not about gimme gimme gimme. It's about what can I give to the society, and this is built into what's going on. And I really think more people. And I don't know how to do it with older people, but I, I know with kids, you just got to start teaching them young that everything they get is a blessing and they should, they should be so thankful that they're able to give back and they should give back. You still live in, you live in Israel currently? I live in Israel. I travel mostly between Israel, New York, and Florida. Those are kind of my three places, but it's for my work. But I, right. I, I, my kids are here. I, my wife and family here. I do really love that about um, the Israeli society and I've, I've, I've most of the uh, Israeli people that I've met I've met in other countries and they've usually they've come after they've been traveling you know I'm riding a bus somewhere and all of a sudden I start talking to a guy who's a backpacker and you know he's, he's an Israeli guy or an Israeli girl and I and I'm just so fascinated with that because in my mind it's such a better approach to a way to start young adulthood to get some experience and some things that are atypical. And I really don't like how in the U S American society we go right from high school to college. And then what happens is we often get locked into, uh, into the earning mindset because we have to, to support, uh, support families usually. And people just mm -hmm. go from right straight from school to work and they miss out on some of the benefits of life that aren't based on that aren't, uh, that, that aren't measured in terms of money. So I really love that about the, the Israeli society. Yeah, we were, that, that's why we moved here when our kids were young, because we wanted them to grow up in that model. We're really family and uh, it w was the core and not, you know, how, how, how successful can I be? I'm going to, yeah, on this, on this show, the, the beauty of podcasting is I don't have to appeal to a mainstream <laughs> audience. I'm just going to read the three verses from Malachi. So, uh, if people aren't, cause there are a lot of listeners who aren't Bible readers. And so let me read those three verses from Malachi that we've been referencing in this conversation, and then we'll move on to, uh, to a different topic. But uh, in a modern translation here, it says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough food in my temple. This is God saying, uh, speaking, if you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they're ripe, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. So that's the actual scripture passage in a uh, in a modern translation that uh, that we're referencing, and it doesn't get much clearer than that. Now the interpretation, <laughs> I don't struggle with what the Bible says. I struggle with how to apply it properly. That's the challenge. Uh, but we should have a whole discussion on these prophecies that come. <laughs> true that's a, that's a great topic well it it is it's a topic on my list and and these are some of the things that I love to 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 peer into and to look at and to try to to figure out because I've never seen the, the other aspect of the giving is you just build for yourself whether or not it returns financially I, I don't know but regardless of whether it does return financially you build for yourself social equity and social capital 
And that's how the Jewish society functions. When I look at how what the the Jewish economic system that that God laid out for the children of Israel, and you look at how the society functioned, everything was about a social contract among people. And so when you start looking through the ways that, that, that things were handled, you see very clearly that the society of the Bible was, was provided for uh, provided for all people, and people were, were, were cared for and were taken care of. And yeah, so. go ahead, shoot. I, I just want to comment on that, which is which is true. In other words, before the Bible came, just for example, women were literally slaves, right? In other words, there was no concept of an right. independent woman, mm-hmm. right? And but you know when 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 the the Bible came down and the Jewish law kicked in, so there was this whole concept. You know, you don't just marry some, you don't just uh, buy a woman as a slave, right? You have to marry her, and there's a mar- I believe that the Jews were the first people to have a prenuptial agreement, which mm-hmm. is part and parcel of the whole marriage ceremony that says what the responsibilities of the husband are to the wife. It was literally thousands of years ahead of its time. So, as you're pointing out, a lot of these ideas that people sometimes now are sort of rethinking. You know, I get, I, I listen, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm a big podcast junkie. And I like the personal growth ones. I like people talking about their ideas. And I always get a kick out of when these sort of young guys who are pretty successful in their podcasting career, they come up with like a new idea. And one of them I was just listening <laughs> to, he said, uh, he goes, yeah, you know, once a week, I take a day and I shut my cell phone and I shut my computer and I don't answer emails. I'm thinking, dude, you know, this is, this is the Sabbath. You know, we came up with this. I'm glad you're discovering. Good for you, right? But, uh, you know, we figured this out a while ago and, you know, we've been doing this every day. And then I'll often tell people, yeah, but I don't want, you know, what if God doesn't exist? So I say, all right, fine. If God doesn't exist, and once a week you spend a day with your wife and your kids, you know, sitting around, not watching, you know, the, the internet and not on your phone and your kids aren't going out, but you actually have dinner together and then you hang out the next day, you know, what have you lost? So uh, yeah. that's my plug for family, uh, keeping families together. No, I, I'm with you. And I do think it's funny in our society because many parts of the world, uh, Europe and the United States of America is heading in that direction. Uh, but many parts of the world are uh, post-Christian society. And so oftentimes one of the things I, I observe is uh, people get find an old idea and they get very excited about it. But people will get very excited about many things except the Bible. For example, one of the big ones, there's a big launch, especially young, among young men in, in U.S. American society, uh, about the Stoics. So everyone's reading Marcus Aurelius and, and uh, what was the name of the other guy? Some of these Stoic philosophers. And people get very excited about the Stoic philosophers. But I think, well, wait a second, let's talk, about, <laughs> let's talk about some of the other things that are even more impactful. And you're right. These are not new concepts, but often people are ignorant of, of, of history. And I think, you know, look at Tom's shoes. Uh, uh, and they say, oh, we're going we're gonna to make profit and we're going to share. Well, let's talk about gleaning or let's talk about these certain things. And that's why I love to talk and, and well, I won't. I love this, uh, the po- I'm a little wondering what post-Christian means. These days it looks like post-Christian is ISIS. So yeah. <laughs> it, we better put the brakes on and move back, you know, go into reverse a little bit to get people back into to real family values and charity. And, and you know, that, that's the ticket, man. Yeah. I want to ask a few questions about investing from abroad into the U.S. American system. Now, evidently, I didn't know this before the interview, but you've written an entire book on it, so I couldn't ask you to uh, 
go into <laughs> I couldn't ask you to, to to lay out the book in 10 minutes on a show here but what is it possible for somebody who's not a US American citizen and is living abroad to invest within the United States system so the short answer is yes but the slightly longer answer is no for some people who try to invest via companies that just don't understand that there is life outside the United States. So what, what I've discovered, because this is all I do, is I'll get calls from people all the time. They, they may have read my book. It's, the book is not a very sexy title, but it's extremely descriptive. It's called The Expatriate's Guide to Handling Money and Taxes, which is exactly what the book is about. And so people read the book, and then they call, and they say, hey, Doug, you know, I, I, have, I have an account with a big brokerage firm in America, and they just sent me a letter that says, you know, dear John, uh, you have an address outside the United States, so we can no longer service you. And then they call their broker. They say, what are you talking about? I've been a client of yours for 20 years. He said, yeah, my compliance officers said it's illegal for us to have your account. You, you know, you have 30 days to transfer out. So... The, the true part of that story is that people get these letters all the time. I get a call like that you know, regularly, people calling me saying, I just got kicked out by my U.S. brokerage firm. And we take them on, and we have a U.S. brokerage firm. And the fact is that the thing that's not true about that statement is it's not illegal. It's just that these brokerage firms don't want to deal with the compliance issues of having clients overseas, whereas when you work with a company that specializes in overseas clients, our compliance officers know what it means. They've traveled around the world. They know there's life in, the, in South America and the Middle East and the Far East, and they're perfectly willing to have clients who live outside the United States. The two main conditions are you're not allowed to be a terrorist and you're not allowed to be a money launderer. So we don't, if, if one of your listeners fit into that category, please you know, don't call me. But anyone else, you know, the, the normal people who just want to invest normally are more than welcome. Do you have to... How do you actually establish – so let's say that I'm an Israeli citizen and also a resident of Israel. Can I just come to you and you, how do you set, actually go through the mechanics of establishing an account? Can, can, can I buy mutual funds through you that are standard U.S.-issued mutual funds? What are the mechanics of it? So the mutual fund question is a good question, mostly for uh, non – for people outside the U.S., we buy ETFs, exchange-traded funds, mm-hmm. um, which have – there are pros and cons to both. I won't – we can discuss that later also. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the concept of both is that you're diversifying your money in some area. And so the answer is, yeah, you, you come in, we, I'll interview the client to determine goals and, and uh, tolerance for risk as well as you know, 50 other questions I'm going to ask. And if it's a good fit, so we, we set up the account through our U.S. brokerage firm, which is a Miami-based company. The assets are held through a major U.S. banking company. So they get all the same, exactly, exactly the same brokerage account they would have if I sat with them in, you know, in New York City opening an account for them there. And they can buy the stocks and the bonds and the mutual funds and the ETFs. Uh, the mutual funds are the only thing which you just have to know a little more about, uh, which we do know a little more about. And, uh, but if you, you're just like a normal person. We give you get a visa card if you want or a checkbook and online access, all the same stuff you're used to if you're in America. You just have to find a company that, un, you know, that, that doesn't say no to people outside the U.S. And I'll tell you one mistake people make. One one of the many, but one is they'll say, "Oh yeah, but yeah, no, I live in New York. I don't really live overseas." And they get you know their their college buddy to let them use their address. The problem with that is if you use an address inside the United States and you don't live there, that creates an in, sort of an incidence of residency 
which could create a tax problem. So I discourage people from perjuring themselves when they fill out new account forms. You should be honest. And if one company doesn't want your money, that's their problem. Go to a company. I'm not the only, I mean, there are a lot of guys like me who specialize in, uh, in expatriate or non-U.S. people who want to have U.S. brokerage accounts. I'll have to read your book and uh, learn some more about it. It's an area of my knowledge that I'm pretty weak in. I have one last theme that I want to uh, explore with you because I'm interested in your personal perspective, and then I want you just to share about your books, your website, and all that stuff. But last theme that I want to ask you about is living in Israel. I haven't been to Israel yet. I'd like to go. Uh, in fact, somewhere in the next – Thank you. <laughs> Everyone's invited. Anyone, you're all invited to come. It's been, I, you know, I went to Egypt about four or five years ago, and that was my first entry into that part of the world, and it just blew my mind. I loved traveling around Egypt, and as I have, a, I have an interest, a, a, a just a hobby interest in biblical archaeology, and going to Egypt was incredible uh, because here I am reading through you know the book of Exodus and and in the latter part of Genesis talking about Joseph and the and then here I am walking through the the pure you know walk, looking at the pyramids and walking through the temples and it just brought so much of a of a increased understanding of uh, of what the Bible says the things that I had never understood and and so. I've never been to Israel, and I'm fascinated by coming. So maybe sometime in the next couple of years. But from an external perspective, uh, Israel seems like a very uh, weird place to want to live for somebody who's not a Jew. Seems like it's just you know the perspective that we get is that uh, it's a very difficult place to live. There's a constant threat and specter of violence hanging over your head with the the wars that go on, and you have this tiny little country in the middle of a very contentious region. What's it actually like living in Israel? Hmm. Interesting. I'll, I'll go back to, the, uh, to the, the biblical prophecy, which you can now look up and quote for us word for word, which says that when the Jews are in the land, it will flourish. When they're not in the land, it will be desolate. So 2,000 years ago, when the Jews were exiled from the land of Israel, uh, after that, it became desolate. I mean, you look at the travel logs of people literally from thousands of years ago through Mark Twain who traveled around here. And in fact, he even noticed this prophecy. He said this is, this is exactly like what the prophet said, that the land will be desolate and, uh, because the Jews don't live here. And then the Jews moved back in, right? About 100 years ago, they started to, to come in. And then uh, because of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and millions and millions of Jews being killed – and against the wishes of not just you know the, the local uh, you know few people there were literally there were very very few people who lived in the land during that time you know a hundred years ago and more and further back but d- during that time there was nothing going on uh, but when we came back all of a sudden the land flourished and as as you will see when you come here and as of course I'm sure you know um, you know for example uh, uh, you know, all the technology that you and I are using in this phone call from, you know, voice over IP to uh, Microsoft Windows, which, you know, you're probably running to uh, the way we set it up using voicemail. All of this was developed in Israel. It is, it is probably the number, you know, number one, two or three in terms of technology uh, in the world. And so this is, this is not a third world country that we're living in. This is a number one, you know, first world, super technological uh, place that also, as I see it, has family values that are ingrained in the culture, and those family values, which I, you know, I witnessed, I thought were deteriorating when I was living in America growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, I see the opposite here. I see they are they are growing here. 
do you think about, and that's always the problem of foreign news sources is the, the very rarely does a U.S. American ever hear about Israel unless it's in the context of some violent, uh, some violent thing happening. And you're, from my research and kind of study, you're definitely right about the economy. When you start studying into economics, it's, it's a big, it's Israel is a powerhouse in many ways, but we don't hear about that. We just hear about, well, there was a car bomb in Jerusalem. Do you, mm-hmm. do you, with your personal planning as an Israeli resident, do you think about more seriously about things like violence? Does that account for your planning? Do you have backup plans if, if there's another war that, just lights up next month. Do you think about? Do you factor that into your personal planning? Um, listen, statistics. It, it makes a lot of news, and as you point out, uh, the media doesn't really get it. You know, mm-hmm. s- first of all, everyone should simply stop reading CNN. Right? <laughs> just delete it from their list and you know, be done with that. Um, you know, if you want to know what's really going on, you, you just go to Israel National News, you know, IsraelNationalNews.com, dot com, and that, that tells you what's going on here. And uh, no, the answer is, listen, I, I don't particularly like it when, uh, when, you know, the Hamas is, is lobbing missiles at Israel. And it, it kind of ticks me off when, uh, when <laughs> the UN comes along and says Israel's responsible for, uh, you know, the death of citizens when, when Hamas was launching missiles at our civilian population from inside hospitals and schools and nursery schools. And we did everything possible, everything possible to try to avoid civilian casualties and we're incredibly successful we would not bomb we we so we had i mean there by the way there this is on youtube you can see this or you can look at the uh israeli military twitter feed because they they put this they they film it we were flying planes over missile launchers watching them launch missiles at us watching them load missiles into ambulances which they would use to transfer from one place to the other and then one of our spotters said oh wait there's a kid nearby who might have been dragged in and we would abort the mission, knowing that that missile would then be launched on our civilian population. So it, it, it's insane that, there, that anyone is saying that Israel is responsible for civilian uh, deaths, even one, which we are absolutely not. They, they brought it upon their own army that they voted in, by the way. Hamas was a democratically elected winner in, in Gaza. Uh, they're the ones who are causing this damage. So th- this is... It, it's just unbelievable how the news twists it. And if people would actually read what's going on or come and visit and see what's going on, they would, uh, they would realize that you know, the UN is just is totally full of it and, and they, they shouldn't be involved in, uh, in making these claims. And by the way, at the same time, you know, I haven't seen any statistics saying, well, you know, all these countries are bombing ISIS. No one's noticing that there are a lot of civilian casualties there. <laughs> I don't think anyone's saying, well, Obama should be brought up on charges for civilian casualties. Because he's going after a bad guy, you know. He's trying. Hopefully, he's going to destroy them. Although, that, that is also a different <laughs> subject for a future discussion. So, but, but the but to the question, do you? So you don't think, but but you don't actually. You, the what, I don't live in fear. Is that right. a question? No, but not I the do fear. Not. But do you do you take do you take steps to plan for it? Like, do you think about that uh, as far as part of your uh, perception from a financial planning perspective? No, <laughs> I don't. Okay. I, I, I don't. In other words, it, Israel is uh, obviously we we are a a, uh, a superior military force, 
and though the, the UN would certainly like to try to destroy us, the uh, and many countries around us want to destroy us, we have the capability to to protect ourselves. And uh, unfortunately, it seems the world, for example, is not stopping the, the the world's largest sponsor of terror, which is Iran. And this very well may be left up to us to take care of, which shocks me because mm-hmm. the, the whole world is going to suffer as a result of Iran getting a nuclear bomb. But, you know, when, if we have to do it, we are not going to go through another Holocaust. No right. chance. Right. And we do have the ability to stop them. The reason I talk about it, and, and I know I'm, uh, I'm pressing you, it's just more of an interest. I, I don't often get a chance. To, in fact, I can't remember if I've ever talked with um, <laughs> somebody living in Israel who is also a financial planner. So I'm just uh, enjoying my own personal opportunity to ask questions that I'm interested in. Uh, I, th- I think about fin- financial planning in different contexts, and when I'm reading uh, about different perspectives, different, uh, uh, I guess, t- situations, I think, how would fin- how could I apply? F- what are the principles that I could apply in that situation? So whether it's uh, okay, let's say that I was born in uh, abject poverty in uh, uh, in the Congo. Is there some principle that I would be able to apply that would help me or help somebody that I were coaching to be able to, I guess, improve their situation? Now, I'm also a realist that I don't think that (laughs) – I've just finished a a biography of Oprah and one of the things I'd never had – paid attention to i've never watched oprah but i was aware i'm aware of who she is obviously but i'd never uh, paid attention to the day-to-day uh, things of her show but in this biography that they the, the biographer an author named kitty kelly was was going through uh, some of the various uh, i guess controversy that oprah faced when she was talking about the book called the secret and she got all kinds of flack because she embraced the secret as her gospel and people were saying, well, what do you do with, uh, you know, the, the reason that the, the Congo, the, the, the person who's, uh, you know, dying of starvation in the, in Somalia is simply because they haven't, <laughs> they haven't visualized their better future. I mean, there's oh, a yeah, point there's in time, <laughs> you know, positive thinking might be a good way to start, but there are situations. I mean, when you're a slave, you're a slave. Uh, but I think about these different situations. And I think, okay, how could I insulate myself in that, in that scenario? Uh, and so that's my reason for asking you that question is just, I think about okay, here's my perception of Israeli society. Is there a way to take advantage of all of the growth, but also be more, uh, would I need to be more defensive? Would I need to uh, be more engaged with my local community? Would I need to have a local group so that if uh, more attacks occur, that I've got a plan for that? Um, And so, forgive me for kind of pressing on it. It's just something I'm curious about. Uh, And because I believe there are some principles that can be applied for in financial planning in every society, in every culture. Uh, and then there are also some things that you do uniquely uh, in each place. Uh, so uh, Sorry, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm missing the question. Yeah. In other words, most people – let me give you the, what it looks like here. Most people, they finish the army or they finish national service. They get married. They go to school. They get a job. They, we have a, a very, very uh, strong pension system here, much different from the U.S. In other words, the government does not want to be responsible for uh, supporting old people in the future, which I think is the right attitude. Uh, you know, the most people in America, are the, so their Social Security payment when they retire is their most important 
income stream when they retire and because they don't have private pension, they don't have savings. The average American has something like $10,000 in the 401k. So Israel doesn't want that situation. So we've got a, a very advanced pension system. We have the most advanced uh, health care for everyone system uh, in the world. Uh, the the health care here is literally second to none. And I don't think it can be copied in the U.S. just because I don't think the, they get it. With all due respect, <laughs> I don't think the current healthcare system is particularly working so well in the U.S. Uh, here it does work, I believe, very well. And uh, so you grow up, you need healthcare; it's available to you. I pay a dollar and a half every time I, that's my copay when I have to go see a doctor. And um, then uh, I have a, a strong military that defends me. And when I retire, I'm going to have a pension along with any savings I've built up. So I don't see, I don't feel the need to do any extraordinary financial planning like I might do if I was somewhere else, telling people, okay, listen, we got to offshore some of your money, because, you know, we'll put it into Switzerland, it's nothing like that. Yeah. You know, we invest in normal places, Israel doesn't have, doesn't have currency controls, um, it's a very open economy, it's a very reasonable taxation system. I don't like paying the taxes, because you know, no it's never fun for anyone. But, uh, you know, the term you used, by the way, I just want to touch on was, you know, slavery. And I want to connect that to what I'd mentioned before about my, uh, my dislike for the way the UN handles things in the world. Um, there's something like 26 million people today on the planet you and I share that are slaves. I cannot believe that the UN finds it more important to come around and complain to Israel that we protected ourselves during a defensive war uh, when they don't have the, the time or the money or the effort or the people to go and literally liberate slaves, you know, people just like the Jews were slaves building the pyramids, you know, it was, watch the movie, right, how bad it was, read the Bible, it explains it even better, and yet the UN can't deal with slavery, it, that's what really gets me. It's, I appreciate you clarifying, and I think, and I apologize, I've kind of stalled the conversation, when I, here's what I was, here's what I was driving at. I don't really believe that from, and that's where the problem is perception and, and news. The only news that comes to the United States primarily about Israel is usually an anti, a negative sentiment or it's about violence. And so the perception that I have of Israel not having been there yet and is, well, it's a pretty violent place and I got to live in fear of missiles coming across the border. If I lived in a place where there's missiles coming across the border, I wouldn't be buying a mutual fund. I'd be building a bunker. <laughs> You know, and I'd make sure that the the first thing that I would do is figure out how can I protect my family from these missiles that are coming across the border, and how can I figure out how to have an early warning system. And I would have a bunker. I would have uh, an escape plan. I would have something like that set up because, in terms of back to risk, opportunity, and invest, it's a, if I live in a place where there's missiles coming in, it's a risk for me, and I've got to protect against that. Now, I don't, I don't think that you live on the border where that's a a, a daily. Uh, we are a very small country, so we are, of course, subject to uh, missile attack. At any, in other words, no matter where you are, whether you're you know, on, literally on the border or in the heart of the capital, uh, you know, Jerusalem. So that's my uh, impression. Israel, that, 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 that's that's but, what I mean. That's but, my impression. Is so that I'll tell you something interesting. So we've got, uh, during the last war, we, we used a tool called the Iron Dome, mm -hmm. which is the anti-missile missile system uh, developed and tested here with, uh, in partnership with the United States. And Rafael, which is one of Israel's biggest uh, companies and military uh, uh, systems, has now developed an, uh, an anti-missile laser system, literally just like you know, you'd see in the movies. And these, these, uh, these systems are what protect us. And in fact, there was a great quote during the last war 
uh, the Palestinians said when they were shooting missiles at us, you know, all day, every day, they said, it's amazing. Their God just shoots down our missiles. And I, I really appreciate that they felt it was our God shooting it down. And again, we can get to the religious discussion, but the, what you would have seen was these, you know, these Iron Dome missiles, and we could see them sometimes shooting down the bad guys with incredible success. So I, I don't think you have to worry. In other words, we, we do not feel like we are living in a, uh, in a danger zone, but that's because we have you know, a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, military to protect us. Yeah, it's an interesting, and we'll we'll wrap it up. Uh, and I'll just share one 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 comment, and then we'll wrap it up. And I'll let you just make any comment that you want. But I think it's important to look at the local situation that you have. Um, now, I'm not a Jew, and so I don't, and I don't particularly identify as part of the Israeli society or see myself as part of that uh, organization. So, if I did, maybe that would change things. But if I lived in Israel, I'd I'd have an escape plan. You know, I'd have, I don't know whether it's a sailboat or an airplane or a deal with somebody who's got one and a compound in another country. Like I'd have an escape plan is basically knowing that I'm in a very contentious part of the world. Uh, that, and if I had, again, I'm talking about money. If, if I'm dead broke, I'm not starting there. But if I had a million bucks, I'd, I'd invest some of that into the security of me and my family. And so that's what I was probing at is I think that each location uh, – it matters where you are. Uh, if you're living in a place where electricity is um, in and out, not Israel, but you're living in a, a nation where that is, the first thing that's going to improve your quality of life is a generator, not a mutual fund. And so to me, that's the lens that I use to look at financial planning is to say there's a purpose to money. And the purpose to money is multifold. It's to provide for my needs. It's to provide for the needs of my family, and then let's provide for our long-term goals. And there are different tools that are going to be effective along the way toward that goal. And each of us needs to look at our own plan and say, what's going to be the next step in our plan? And so if I am a completely broke person living in uh, I don't know, white trash South Florida, then the first place that I'm going to try to do is say, I need to make sure that I can uh, get myself into a better living situation. I need to move. So it's going to be more important for me to save up enough money for me to move from a place where I'm in, you know, surrounded by not so encouraging neighbors to a place where I'm going to be surrounded by more encouraging neighbors. And that's going to be the better investment than me buying shares of Coca-Cola stock. That's the lens that I place on, on finances, always looking yeah, to say, <laughs> what's going to improve my life? And so I was probing just to see if you think like that at all or if there's anything unique to living in Israel. So I think that we have to look – first off, Josh, you have to come and look. I plan to. I feel you're getting kind of a wrong, uh, a, a wrong impression of what's going on. But in the same way, you know, thing a lot of people like to blind themselves that you see in the United States. You know, the uh, Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini – published a book about destroying the United States, right? And, and they're not a loser country, right? It's not like, you know, you have a bunch of people jumping up and down, step, you know, stepping on an American flag. It's a, it's a real country with nuclear capabilities. They're only getting stronger every day, mm -hmm. and there's nothing that's going to stop them whatsoever, not even snapback sa sanctions, which are, you know, a joke, obviously. So if you're if you're asking me that question, I would just turn it right back around and ask you, what are you doing? Right? When, a few years ago, I had a number of friends who were killed when uh, Al-Qaeda took down the Twin Towers and destroyed you know, half of Wall Street. So uh, there are dangers wherever you look. And there's a limit to what you can do. Right? You could go buy guns and ammo and move out to uh, 
you know, middle America somewhere were probably ISIS and Al-Qaeda and many of the other, you know, organizations you've never heard of just because they haven't made the news yet. Uh, they may not find you out there, but I don't think you're going to change your life. Well, I, I would. Um, and that's what I mean. I wouldn't live in New York City. Uh, and (laughs) well, that's, it's, it's a, it's a fair, it's a fair response. And uh, I apologize if it seemed like I I don't, uh, that's perception of Israel. I don't think it's accurate. (laughs) I remember, uh, one of the places that shocked me the most as far as traveling when I first traveled to Hong Kong, uh, when you're raised in the United States of America, as you probably know, you're raised with this idea and this perception that, well, we're the best. And I had been to New York City. And when you first go to New York City, you, you just think, wow, this is an amazing place. And then I went to Hong Kong. And I said, New York City is the nastiest, most disgusting place on the earth compared to this place. It's beautiful. It's way more modern. Everything is just is fantastic. And it, that was one of a major tools for me of breaking – I can't remember the sociological term for it, but basically this bias that well, we're the best and everything in America is the greatest. Uh-uh. It's not the case. But I do think very seriously that you've got to pay attention to where you live and what the risks are. Uh, I wouldn't live in New York, uh, but I'm also not trying to build a, a career as a hedge fund manager. And if I had to make that risk – I would not I wouldn't necessarily try to to stay there and not because of a necessarily a terrorist attack concern although that would be a, a major consideration for me, but primarily from a lifestyle perspective because when I look at the lifestyle that it would make for my family living in New York City to me for just speaking for me not to any listener who likes to live there that's a hell lifestyle everything is it's a concrete jungle it's everything is overscheduled everything is expensive where is the time just to hang out and play with my with with my kids i don't want that kind of lifestyle and so the best investment for me to make is not to live in new york city and i can't imagine the amount of money you would i, I wouldn't i can't think right now that i would be willing to do it um, and so there are there whether it's physical security concerns or whether it's just lifestyle considerations. I think the key is for us to think about our lives on a holistic basis. And this is what I don't like about the financial planning industry: is those of us who are financial planners, if we're talking, usually we're hired by somebody who's already thinking that way. Financial planners are good at working with people that have money, and they've already thought that. They've already set up their lifestyle. But when we speak to the public, oftentimes we stay so focused on the number one thing of, hey, here's how you choose a good mutual fund or a good bond fund, and we don't expand things into talking about lifestyle. First thing that I did, if I, I would do if I grew up in New York City, maybe I'd move to Israel if I was uh, if I were uh, had a connection there, and I have, maybe when I, maybe when I go there, I'll see it and I'll move it. <laughs> I'd move out because to me. I don't want that kind of lifestyle cost. Now, my friends that are New Yorkers, they love it, and I think they should be there. They would hate living where I live. Um, so that's why, I, that's why I probe it. You can't be overly cautious, but you do need to be careful. And sometimes a move from New York City to Florida, uh, it's useful. I don't have to spend as much money on coats and heating as, <laughs> as New Yorkers do. <laughs> Doug, I'll give you the last word. Go ahead and feel free to respond to that. And then go ahead and share with us about your books, your websites, all of your online presence where people can go and connect with more of your content and information. All right. Josh, I really appreciate it. I, I do think the, the, the critical takeaway is that like you have friends who live in New York and really like it. And by the way, I'm, I'm a big fan of New York. I go there all the time. Uh, it's just not where I wanted to live. That's all. And I think that uh, it, the question each person has to ask you know, of himself and you know, with his whole family is what are the important things for me? And is, exactly. is family important? In which case maybe living a, you know, an iPhone lifestyle with, uh, you know, overprogrammed is not a good thing and don't live in New York. You know, live in Israel or you know, somewhere else. Uh, or you know, say, listen, this, this is where I want to be at the moment. And 
it is absolutely true. The most important thing with any financial advisor who you're going to work with or a financial planner is make sure that whoever you talk to, that, that he listens to what your story is. If you sit down with someone and right away he starts telling you, you know, about an investment you should do before even really spending a lot of time, not just a questionnaire you fill it online, but really listening to who you are and what your goals are. And I don't just mean, well, I want to retire with a million dollars. I mean, you know, where you want to live and what you want your life to look at. That's the thing people need to, uh, need to really focus on. And uh, a great way to learn about it, now thank you very much for asking Josh, is uh, in the book, Rich as a King, which you can learn about at our website, richasaking.com. We've got a Twitter feed, which is at richasaking. And the other two things we spoke about today is if you're living outside the U.S. and want to invest in the U.S., uh, you can go to my corporate website, which is www.profile-financial.com. Com. I've got a lot of videos there where I teach a number, you know, answer a lot of the specific questions about uh, being living outside the U.S. In fact, I have a video that's one of my most popular ones on YouTube about being an expatriate or non-U.S. person. But you can find all of that at profile-financial.com, including links to the book, The Expatriate's Guide to Handling Money and Taxes. And you mentioned uh, earlier, did you have a, give- a giveaway or something, anything like that planned for the audience? Yes, but I forget what I was going to give away. Oh, but I can't, I can't what it is. <laughs> now, for the for the people outside the U.S., the uh, go to the website profile-financial.com, and right on the home page, I proudly present all of my books. Uh, one of them is the Expatriate's Guide to Handling Money and Taxes. If you go to the website for the book, there is a free webinar that talks about certain things that people outside the U.S. need to know. And go ahead and sign up there. Um, oh, now I remember. Yeah, I, I also do have a, a radio show called Goldstein on Gelt.com, which appears on Israel National Radio. Goldstein on Gelt. Gelt is the Yiddish word for money, and my name is Goldstein. So if you go to Goldstein on Gelt.com and just sign up for our newsletter, we'll give you a free copy of the ebook version of the retirement planning book, uh, which, or you could buy it at Amazon for $15, but may as well get the ebook version by signing up for our newsletter at Goldstein on Gelt.com. Awesome. Doug, thanks for coming on. This has been uh, probably one of your more unusual interviews, but I've Indeed, enjoyed it. Indeed, but I had a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope uh, you know, if anyone wants to get in touch or has questions or comments, any of those websites I gave have contact us buttons, and it's easy to get in touch with me there. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks a lot. Here's the deal. Think strategically about your own finances. Consider the whole board. Consider all your potential options. And move toward a clear objective. Check out Doug's book, Rich as a King. Uh, check out his website. Check out his other materials. He's got a lot of information for you. Uh, who knows? For some of you, he might even be a great financial advisor uh, if you fit into the uh, community that he's able to serve most effectively. Uh, feel free to check out all of his resources. And, and uh, again, maybe he can serve you further with more of his content. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I appreciate each and every one of you who listens to the show. Please, if you do, do me a favor, if you enjoy the show, please pass it along to a friend. That word-of-mouth marketing is the number one way that Radical Personal Finance has has grown, and I thank each and every one of you for doing that. The best and easiest way for you to spread the word on the show is simply to tell a friend to listen and just tell them, download the app in the App Store. Uh, there's a Radical Personal Finance app that is available in each and every uh, App Store for every platform. Uh, just search the App Store for Radical Personal Finance, and you'll be able to find it there. So that's the best way to send a friend to the content. Uh, just tell them, search the App Store, and I appreciate each and every one of you who tells somebody to listen to the show. 
If the content is valuable and you'd like to support the show directly, please go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron and sign up to support the show as a patron of the show. I appreciate uh, each and every one of you who do that. And I'm working hard to return to you a lot of value within that patronage program. One of my major focuses is to really uh, tighten things up. uh, The Radical Personal Finance business has been a little bit too sloppy uh, and I've been tightening it up. And one of the ways of tightening it up is to deliver more benefits. Uh, For the next two months here, during October and November 2015, I am doing a weekly Q&A call with all patrons at $10 and up. So $10 a month and up, I'm doing a weekly Q&A call with you. Details for all of that are on the Patreon page. So go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron and you can find all of those details. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. I will be back with you tomorrow for an episode on annuities. That will be uh, very exciting. I'm going to try to dispel some of the myths about annuities and try to give you a real clear background and framework so that you can dig into the content of annuities and not be uh, intimidated by annuities in general. And so check back tomorrow for that episode, and I wish you a great day.